Hey, Paul, you, you know who would have been a really good guest on this show? Oh, no. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino. You know why? Because I'm sure when he's writing a script, he thinks, PG, why? <laughs> also not bad. I, it must be late. <laughs> I think you may have broken me. <laughs> Entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or conditions. For more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you should always do your own homework and let us know the world. This episode of The Curbsiders is brought to you in partnership with the American College of Physicians as part of their I Am Power series. This is a resident transition series for catalyzing your professional future. You can check out the episodes we've done so far, as well as access meeting notes, discussion guides, and facilitators guides at www.acponline.org forward slash I Am Power. I really wish something like this had been available when I was going through residency. So share it with your residents, your program directors. We really want people to hear this great content. So now on with the show. Stuart, did you want to start the show tonight? How can I interrupt myself? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're started. Uh, Stuart and Paul, thank you for joining. Well, hi, Matt. How you doing? I, you know I love this kind of show where we just kind of talk about medical education, yeah. what it's like to be a doctor. Uh, this this On this one, we focused on becoming a PGY1, but I, I think before we get too far into this, we should have Paul tell the audience what we, what we do on this show. Paul, what should I do? Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I thought of about seven answers immediately and then just tuck them all back <laughs> into the back of my brain. Um, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And this time around, uh, we have the experts, yeah. Dr. Somil Chudgar and Dr. Alex Glazer, to help us talk about the transition uh, to intern year, which should be an anxiety-provoking time for anyone who's about to enter the exciting field of medicine. They, they did a great job of normalizing probably what people are feeling in intern year and, and providing tips on... Uh, how to handle some of the struggles that come up, whether it's wellness or whether it's kind of personal development things, whether it's how to structure your day, a lot of, a lot of usable stuff in there, um, ways, ways to work with the medical students on your team. If you're worried about being a teacher, uh, just a lot of usable things, especially when you add it together with the other shows we've done on this topic, Paul and Stuart, can you tell them about, uh, Stuart, can you tell everybody about Dr. Somil Chudgar? Sure. Dr. Somo Chidgar is a hospitalist at Duke University, although he's a Carolina Tar Heel at heart. He has been the clerkship director for internal medicine for the past six years and worked as an advisor for Duke students applying to medicine residency for the last eight. Additionally, he directs the clinical skills course and was the director of the fourth year capstone course. Capstone. Well, oh, crah, crah. Additionally, he directs it says it twice in the script, okay? Additionally, he directs the clinical skills course and was a director of the fourth year capstone course which, pre- which prepares students for the transition to intern year. His research interests are in the assessment of clinical skills, preparing students to be effective teachers and the tra- transition from medical student to intern. 
That's right, Stuart. And we are also fortunate to have with us Dr. Alex Glazer, who is a more recent residency graduate. He was one of Dr. Chudgar's students at Duke, which means he survived the transition to intern and resident at the University of Pennsylvania. He was then a chief resident at Penn and started last year on faculty at Pennsylvania Hospital working in the resident clinic. So let's get started. Alex, can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and include maybe a hobby or interest outside the world of medicine? All right. Um, I guess 32-year-old man, uh, recently married in May, um, love internal medicine and particularly the teaching aspects of being a doctor. Um, My favorite interest outside of medicine, I guess I really like doing things outdoors and trying to stay active, spending as little time in front of screens after work hours as I possibly can. Doing a good job tonight, right? <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> you know, this is uh, We'll make it worth your while, Alex. Thank you for making an exception. No, no, no. You don't realize I'm actually sitting in a park right now. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. We're doing this the wrong way, Matt. Yes. <laughs> so, Mill, can you, uh, can you give us a one-liner? And uh, same thing, something outside of medicine that you enjoy. Sure. So 30-some-year-old hospitalist and clinician educator who loves any excuse to travel, suffers from chronic overcommitment to new and ongoing projects, and tend to overestimate my own hiking abilities, which leads to intense soreness the day after most of my hikes. I like that. Paul or Stuart, did you have any follow-up questions for either of our esteemed guests here? What's the best advice you've ever given to an up-and-coming resident? So I think one of the most important things, if you're thinking about when you're going to be a teacher, is getting to know your learners well. And I think having an understanding of what your learners know, but also who they are, where they come from, things along those lines, really helps you connect on a more personal level. And I think it makes it much easier for you to be able to teach them. So I think if you're thinking in the context of a resident as a future teacher, that's probably one of the most important things in my mind. See how I changed that question to fit the uh, motif there? Nicely done. (laughs) Alex, anything to add? So I think my my favorite piece of advice that I like to give people that somebody gave me when I was in med school was um, you can't compare your insides to somebody else's outsides, meaning that we all have our own internal insecurities and we look at other people and look at how impressive they are for one thing or another or uh, something that we admire in them and we think, oh, why why can't I be like that? And what you don't realize is you're actually comparing how you feel about yourself how that person projects themselves as opposed to comparing how you project yourself to how they project themselves or how you feel on the inside to how they feel on the inside. Uh, And that was, I think, a piece of advice that got me through a lot of uh, downs in residency and career and, you know, all sorts of parts of life. Yeah. And if if you want to be a surgeon, that's a great literal advice too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Lest they forget. Wait, is it? (laughs) I'm well, I can't I can't think that I don't think it tracks actually. I don't I don't think that's correct. <laughs> Paul, we're gonna ask anything? I well, I, th- I thought we'd covered both our guests. I can I'm always in the mood for a, a book recommendation. So uh, we can start with Alex. What what should I be reading these days? Oh man, I read a lot of uh, fantasy and sci-fi novels, so prepare yourself for that. Okay, um, yeah. Well, I think so I think everyone who's ever wanted to begin to read sci-fi or fantasy has to read the Wheel of Time series. Which I was gonna, oh, more, that was going to be my pick of the week. I mean, it's even week. more important because they're about to make a whole Amazon Prime series about it. So we, See, everyone should be preparing. What did you think about the Brian Sanderson books? Love Brian Sanderson. I've read everything he's ever written since he finished the Wheel of Time really? series. Also amazing. Great intro. I don't intro know, man. I, I, I didn't like his... his when, he, when he takes over, you can tell the prose just completely changes. 
it's different. But books. He's still good. I still I still have a respect for 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 his writing, and I really enjoyed his books. But it was definitely different. I agree. Excellent, excellent pick. The wheel. What you're referring to? The wheel of time. It's person, uh, Robert uh, Jordan, and he died, and then this other guy took over. Yeah, he he died of sarcoidosis. And uh, Brian Sanderson, wasn't it sarcoidosis or is it amyloidosis? I can't remember off the top of my head. One of the OCs. Yeah. <laughs> and so his, his, his widow actually um, partnered with another author to finish his series. The series is, what, 13, 14, 15 books? 13, I've, yeah. I've got them all on my bookshelf. But, of course, you have like, there's like a prequel. There's a side. No, this is ridiculous. Yeah. But they're worth it. Every page They are is definitely worth it. worth it. I've read them all twice. That's how, Yeah. You can't read it more than twice. You're just going to go nuts. Zomo, what about you? So I have a more medical book that I actually just recently started. I've not gotten very far into it, but a bunch of friends recommended it. So I ended up picking it. It's called Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity by Ronald Epstein. I don't know if y'all have read it as well, but it talks about using mindfulness in the clinical encounter and really using that to build your resilience and kind of focus on the physician-patient relationship. So I've really enjoyed it so far. I'm only a couple of chapters in, but I'm sure it it resonated very well as I went through. So we get a lot of book recommendations. That sounds familiar, and I think I think it was recommended recently by someone else as well. So I, I guess we're we're starting this episode talking about the transition to the intern year, which is necessarily ter- terrifying, or, or at least it should be. And we're we're hoping to sort of normalize the challenges of transitioning from student to intern, and just talk about how to best facilitate this. So I, I guess. A great question to ask, uh, and I will start with Somil, is is why are we doing this? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think certainly a lot of anxiety builds as, as people are starting intern year. And from all the students I've talked to, I think there's a lot of excitement, but there's also a lot of, what is this going to be like? Am I ready? Am I ready to do this? And I think a lot of reassurance goes into allowing that to happen. So I think by normalizing it, just as you said, it's an experience that all of us have shared, all of us have been through, many people get through it. Um, I think that makes it a lot easier for people when they're considering what that's going to feel like. Alex, any any pearls to add to that? I guess I would just add that, um, you know, in our profession, we also love to talk about um, our own experiences as interns and residents. And I think one of the challenges that current interns must have is that when you talk to attendings or people who have gone through this before, they're always just peppering you with how their intern year was harder <laughs> for one reason or another, or for or how these day, kids these days don't know. Uh, and so I, I don't know, I think it's nice to talk about what the intern experience is maybe more like today and try mm-hmm. to normalize that. And I, I think all of us are committed to doing as little back in my day talk as we possibly can. I would I'm totally on board with that and I think that I think my hope my hope for this is that it it's entertaining and that we provide a lot of useful tips and just make people you you mentioned normalization of things I think just making le- letting the people listening know like you know a lot of these things that they're going through are normal and other people went through them and will continue to go through them and hopefully we'll give some ideas ways to mitigate mitigate things yeah, literally every doctor yeah. has every doctor who is in practice has done this. Has done this, right? Right. Let's talk about some of the the challenges, and I mean, maybe we can break it down a little bit. But Alex, I'll throw it to you first. What are what are some of the big challenges that people are going to face uh, as they're transitioning into their intern year? You know, I guess I was an intern now six years ago, I think, and I moved to Philadelphia for my intern year from North Carolina. I didn't really know anyone. And you have to, in mean, my experience at least, was that moving to a new place is hard, even just that in and of itself. 
you have to build a new support system. You have to make new friends, learn a new place. Uh, you know, you're also working your first job, and it's not just any job. It's a job that's 80 hours a week with perhaps you know 28-hour shifts and working weekends, and it may be your first job where you're learning how to work in an office environment, and you're far from your family and in a place that you didn't have history with. So I think there's lots of personal challenges that come into just this transition alone, let alone the professional. Yeah. And so Alex, can I, can I ask, that's, that's a great point, but I, can I ask the experience of intern year, was it different than your expectations? I feel like we all have a sense that it's hard, but were you prepared for how hard it was or in what ways that it was actually difficult? Or was it just like on TV? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> or was it scrubs and just a lot of hanging out and romance? You know, I love that question because I remember at the end of my intern year, my program director um, sat down with each intern. And I remember when she met with me, uh, she sort of asked me a similar question, like, how did intern year do in comparison to how you thought? And I'll tell her, I'll tell you all what I told her, which is, I think intern year was a six out of 10. Uh, 10 being the hardest, worst possible year I could ever imagine, where all I did was trudge back and forth in the hospital, didn't eat, didn't sleep, didn't see friends, and was just miserable for a year. That would be a 10. And a one being, you know, essentially the fourth year of medical school. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think it was a six, like it had its, mo on average, it had its moments that were tens and it had its moments that were ones and twos, but on, on average it was hard, but it was certainly manageable. And, um, you know, you have a life in intern year and you have to leave the hospital eventually. One of my favorite adages that I tell my inter my residents now is every shift has to end. Um, and eventually you do go home and you live your life and a lot of things happen outside of work. So, Mel? Yeah, I think Alex did a great job of covering some of the personal challenges and some of the professional things as well. I think the other professional challenges that I tend to think about is moving to intern year, you're working a lot harder and you have a lot more responsibility than your fourth year. If you consider the sub-I to be kind of the pinnacle experience of fourth year and the most that you do, at most you may carry four or five patients and certainly that's going to be different when you're an intern. You're going to be carrying a lot more. I think the other challenge is as a sub-I, you're used to getting someone's always over your shoulder, your orders are being co-signed, you're always having that extra layer of support which I think as an intern, you'll have part of the time, but there'll be times that you'll be making the decision and your senior may not be right there looking over your shoulder as you're doing it. And I think adjusting to that is certainly a challenge. Um, being that primary provider, being the person who has to go and speak to the families and things along those lines in a way that, you know, you're the physician now, so it's a very different feel. Um, but to me, that's exciting, right? Like that is why we did this and this is what we um, – are working towards. So I think it's a really exciting time as well. I think one of the hard things that I, that I always like bring up with interns is when you're part of what's so hard about the first, the, the first time is like the first time you do everything intern year, you're like double or triple checking. And there's like some amount of trepidation. You want to make sure it's okay. And there, and it just takes so long or, or you don't even know, you know what you're supposed to do, but you don't know who you should call to get that done or how to get it done. And it's, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of that, but that, people very quickly get over that and they, they very quickly, like after it usually takes like a week or two and then they're, they're like functioning at least decently and uh, a lot of cover coverage by the upper years. But I think people are more resilient in that sense than they probably give themselves credit for. Yeah, I agree. Totally. If I think back to like one of my very first pages as an intern was that the patient needed Tylenol because they had a headache. And I was like, 
oh, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Let me check the allergies. Oh, have we checked liver function tests recently? Let me check those. And I told I told the the nurse that I wanted to order them, and she's like, you know I could just have her husband walk down to the gift shop and buy some, right? <laughs> and when she said that, I was like, oh, that's a good point. I'll write the order. You know, what dose do you want? That sounds totally reasonable. So, And again, now I wouldn't blink an eye at ordering Tylenol, right? It's a very different feel. And a weekend intern year, all of a sudden it wasn't. But that very first time that it was like me making the decision, I think that was tough. Alex, do you have any particularly memorable times from uh, early on in intern year? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, my 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 first intern year story that I remember is uh, is a little bit of a sadder one. But I remember my first night of intern year. I started my intern year on night shifts, and I was in the CCU uh, doing my first night. And I remember that two hours into the shift, a patient with a STEMI came in. Sadly, um, my senior resident who was there it was just the two of us there overnight. Was coding the patient for about forty five minutes. And um, about halfway into the code, turns to me and says, you need to go out and talk to the family. And I had this moment of like, what? I've been here for two hours. What do you mean? <laughs> talk to the family. Um, and he essentially told me, there's no one else here. Like, there's only two doctors in this unit tonight. It's me, uh, Alex, who has who's standing at the side of the code, and then my senior resident who's running the code. Um, and so I had to go out and talk to this family. And I remember it was a moment of, I stepped outside the room, I collected my thoughts for a second, and I realized like, I could be as scared as I want, but at the end of the day, it's more important for me to go out and talk to this family and right. buck up and be a part of this important moment in their lives than it was to huddle in the corner and be scared. And that was a moment I, I, I distinctly remember of sort of like picking myself up by my bootstraps and saying, all right, here we go. This is intern year. We're doing it. <laughs> so given all the things that go on during intern year, I mean, you, you mentioned a lot of stressors, Alex, that people are going to be thrown into. They may or may not know anybody in the city. They might, so they might not have friends in the, in the place and family in the place where they're going to be working. And this might be their first real job. What sort of things can they do to mitigate that? This just the stress of this massive life change. Yeah. I mean, like this is sort of the, all the wellness stuff. Wellness is a really hot topic in medicine right now. Um, and it takes on a lot of different flavors and different um, venues. I think here it's, you know, I like to think about wellness as, uh, and particularly when we're talking to, talking to interns, as individual resiliency and thinking about ways to build up your own um, skill set to maintain happiness through intern year. Of course, that's also about, you know, um, a program supporting you. You can't just be in a position to lift yourself up and deal with everything. But um I think there's a lot of individual resiliency that goes into this process. So, Mel, did you have any, anything to say as, as far as the topic or any advice that you give to trainees when they're starting intern year or, or your fourth-year students that are going to be leaving to start an, an internship? Yeah, I do, certainly. So I think, you know, the, the term work-life balance gets thrown out a lot, a lot, thrown around a lot. And I think one of the challenges with that is that it assumes a dichotomy between work being the thing that tires you out and life being the thing that rejuvenates you. But I think a lot of us take pleasure in our work and that's why we do what we do. And there may be things in our work for in our workplace that certainly, you know, make us happier and make us do what we want to do. And there may be things in life that are exciting. There may be also things that are difficult. So I think I more I rec I recommend people think of it more as a work life integration as opposed to a work life balance, just so they can kind of put that um, both pieces of that together for them. You know, Somal, I, I totally agree. I am not a fan of the work-life balance idea because, like you said, it sets up this like 
this um, headbutting of the two. I have always liked the idea of this, like well, what I think other people have called a wellness battery, where you have to like yeah. recharge your battery at times, and certain things drain your battery, and certain things recharge your battery. And um, but I like to think of it as like a two by two matrix of the things that recharge and drain with work and life. So, for example, at work, you might have some things that recharge your wellness battery, like having a good family meeting or having a you know a pause like getting coffee with your team and then things that drain your battery at work might be like i don't know putting in tylenol orders at 3 a.m or <laughs> whatever um and then and the same thing for life you know recharging things for life might be going for a run after work or something whereas a draining thing uh, in life might be a, a fight with your significant other so i think that talk is just saying that like life is the thing that makes us feel good and work is the thing that makes us feel bad is way overly simplistic right yeah i think that's a great analogy or a good way to think about it alex Paul Williams, do you have anything to say on this topic? I know you have many thoughts on this topic. I, I actually I had more uh, a question. I, I mean, I I have many thoughts on this topic. We've already actually covered them, and I, I I agree wholeheartedly. The idea of work being opposed to life is just fundamentally incorrect because work is a part of life. So I guess my question I'm gonna throw it to Somil actually, just as someone who's um in in a program programmatic leadership, programmatically, what can we do to sort of emphasize? the joy and actually the work itself. Um, and that, that may not be a, a fair, or that might be too big a question to ask for the purpose of this episode, but just sort of any general things that programs can do to actually emphasize that taking care of patients is the real pleasure. Yeah, I think just that message and making that message very clear, right? So using times that we can debrief difficult experiences or talk about an exciting experience or things along those lines. I think we present interesting cases. We talk about patients we've taken care of. I think celebrating the positive things that happen is really important. Uh, sometimes I, I worry that we focus on things like M&M and how do we improve things. But if we really focus on let's celebrate the positive and emphasize that, because those are 99% of what we go through, then I think that's a really important thing that a program can do to help you know, build, a, build their employees' resilience and help people remember that they chose this profession for a reason. Are there, Alex, any specific like evidence, evidence-based interventions that you would recommend for people, or has this even been studied in in interns or or residents? Funny you ask. No, of course. <laughs> um, so uh, I mean, I think it builds off <laughs> no. Somos point, which I think builds off Somos point too. You know, I think what Somos is saying is that um, we have to recognize the positive things and recognize the good things, and it's a focus on the positive that can help us actually become more resilient and maintain happiness. I think this is a really important point for interns. Um, the one thing that I know of that's evidence-based for increasing resiliency is uh, the idea of three good things or gratitude journal, which are sort of the same uh, two words for the same thing. But the three good things is um, every night at the end of the day, when you're like about to go to bed, you have a journal or a piece of paper and you just write down three good things that happened to you that day and what your role in them was. They can be like big or small. It can be like, I got a coffee on my way to work and my role in that was deciding to get a coffee. It can be, <laughs> right. It could be, I had this really good interaction with a family member and my role in that was I took the time to go back to the patient's room after sign out and talk to them more. Um, and you just identify the thing that made you feel good and what your role was in that thing. And you write down three examples every night and, the, and I, as we, to get back to your question, it is evidence-based. So if you do that for a week, um, your happiness scores on a happiness scoring scale actually continue to rise up to six months out from that week. And your depression scores actually go down six months out from that week. 
Um, so it actually has pretty sustained responses. Um, of course, the one study was not like the most amazing study in the world, but it, there's no uh, harm, right? There's no risk to trying this out and giving a shot. So as we enter the winter later in this year and interns start to get to the low part of the year and sadness starts to kick in, I think this is a good tool to remember to, to try to refocus on the positive. We, whenever wellness comes up on the show, I just always feel that I need to point out the fact that, uh, and this, this might alleviate some guilt for people. I, I mean, wellness, personal wellness can only take you so far. I mean, there's big, big changes that have to be made in order. Like if you're working in the worst possible conditions, no matter what you're doing for your own personal wellness, like it's, it's probably not going to protect you as much. So program leadership and, and hospitals and, uh, offices, wherever you're working need to really think about this and, and be helping you out. I agree. That's really important. And I think if the programs are setting the example and the programs are showing the emphasis through real interventions as to things they can do to help this, then I think that makes a big difference for everyone. How, how do you strike a balance, though, between this is always a difficult thing for me to wrap my, my arms around. How do you strike a balance between a wellness and appropriate stress inoculation? Because it's it's one thing to say that, you know, you can be in a toxic environment and, and your own personal wellness can't get you through that. But what if because this is your, your own experience, right? And so if your own experience is the worst possible experience, you're going to feel like it's the worst possible experience. That so when, you, when you're told to go out there and, and talk to that patient's family, you're like, you know, time out, personal wellness, I can't do this right now. Like, how do you, maybe this is not the place to, to ask that question, because there's always this dichotomy that comes up. And I, it just seems to me so nebulous how to put your arms around it. You know, I think there's no there's no necessarily capital T absolute truth to to that. There's no like this is the moment that it's becoming lazy and not wellness, and this is the moment that we're prioritizing the individual physician over the care of however many people. Um, it, it's certainly a spectrum, but there has to be a balance. I think that I think we have to go with the assumption that everyone is going to always be acting in good faith. You know, if people start abusing the system and saying, oh, you know what? It's five o'clock. I said I was going to go for a run for my personal battery recharge today. Like, see you later. Um, that certainly crosses the line. But I think the pendulum is so far in the other direction at this point, where everyone is so overworked and stretched so thin that um, that it's not even we're not even a place where it's possible. But I, I agree with your sentiment that there has to be a good faith assessment of how, are you actually burned out or do you just want to like have a break for the sake of having a break? You know, and and to the point of the institutional things. It has, it, it's a collaboration, right? And even if an institutional institution makes a change, if individuals don't work as well, then if individuals don't work on their own happiness. It's not going to get anywhere. It has to be both working together to, to fix this huge, huge problem. I do worry. I, I think that's such a fantastic point. And, and I think both you and Matt made about the institutional commitment has to be there. Cause I do worry at some point that we're actually counterproductive and we're adding wellness to the list of things to do already. So you have to find yourself a research mentor and get the research done. Also work 80 hours a week and you know, make you it have to sleep eight hours a night. Right. Yeah. It's just one more thing on the list without any kind of adjustments to allow you time to do it. And so instead we're like, make sure you're making time for yourself, but you really have to take care of your patients and you still have to make sure you think about a good fellowship because God help you if you don't. So it's just like, I just, I worry that there's sometimes a point without real adjustments that we're just actually adding to stress levels as opposed to alleviating them. Yeah. Let's, let's move on. So Mel, I wanted to ask you, when people are struggling, we just gave some some potential ways to help them get through this, what we what we all admit is a difficult transition period. What what resources are available within programs and what do you recommend people do if 
you know, this is going to be released a couple months into intern year. What what should people be thinking about? Yeah, that's a great question. So that's what the program leadership and that's what your colleagues are here for, right? So I would love to know if I feel like you're struggling and if there's a way I could help you. So would your program director, so would the associate program directors, you know, chief residents, there's so many people available whom you can run things by. I will also say, you know, my role is mostly in medical student education. I've had a lot of students who transitioned intern year who keep in touch with me who will sometimes, you know, text me and be like, here's what happened. What do you think about this? Or can we discuss this? Or here's a really good thing that happened that I wanted to let you know about. Here's a cool experience I had. Or here's a great patient experience that I had where I really felt like I helped this patient's family. So I think figuring out who those people are, whom you can turn to uh, whenever you are stressed or whenever things are going on is going to be very important. I think running things by your co-interns is going to be great as well. They're in the trenches with you, kind of experiencing the same thing you are. So experiencing that and expressing you know, to them, here's what I'm struggling with. Do you have ideas? Things like that would be um, great. I think the other place of transition that I think sometimes people forget is that you are now an employee, right? So most hospitals, I imagine, have employee assistance programs or things along those lines um, whom you can try to get in contact with. So figure out what those resources are at your institution is going to be really important. Are those programs yeah. Are those programs like employee assistance? Are you talking about therapies, uh, therapy or... Just someone in HR you can talk about the working conditions with. or I, I'm not sure I'm familiar. Yeah, sure. So I think um, I would think about it more as people who can provide either therapy or an initial place for you to discuss a difficult situation or things along those lines. I know at Duke that they have what's called the personal assistant service, and that's something that all employees have access to. It's a limited number of visits with a... Um, either a therapist or a licensed social worker who can give you information about additional mental health resources, things along those lines. But I know of many residents, faculty, colleagues, et cetera, who've gone to them for a visit or two or three to debrief a difficult in, in, uh, situation at work or something along those lines, which I f- think that people find to be very helpful. And I'll tell you another, I'll add on to that, another appealing thing about um, an EAP, Employee Assistance Program, is that these things are through the HR department at your institution. So they have nothing to do with your residency program. So at the end of the day, it, you know, obviously you should talk to your residency program director and you should be uh, as open as you're willing to be. But you can also do this through just the employer and not go through your program and have that amount of secrecy and if that's what's important to you. Um the other thing I'll add is, someone mentioned totally appropriately that you're an employee. You're also a person, and every person should have a primary care doctor. And um, you know, you can get so much mental health resource just by seeing your primary care doctor. That if this is something that you need help with, or someone to talk to, or if you're thinking about starting an SSRI, a mistake that many interns make is they've discovered this new superpower, which is writing <laughs> prescriptions. And at the end of the day, <laughs> right? And at the end of the day, using your superpower on yourself is a bad idea. So um, if it's crossed your mind that you think you might want to try medication, then the right answer is to find yourself a primary care doctor. I wanted to give a, a shout out to a previous episode that we did with Dr. Poorman, and she talked to us about, uh, we talked about depression and physician suicide, and we talked about some some of the resources for that. And some programs are actually like just mandating that all, all residents uh, meet with a therapist or psychiatrist on X, you know, at, at least once a year or something like that, just so it's a normal, 
it's a normal thing because people worry about being stigmatized if like they're seen going into a therapist's office or psychiatrist's office. And I, I hope that more more and more programs will be starting to do that where it's just mandated like that everyone has a check-in every so often. Um, that way, if you really do have a problem, it's, you know, it's not obvious to people that you're getting help for it if that's something that matters to you. Right. That's great. You know, I th- this was really... A, a, kind of a gray area for me as an intern. Even when I started, I wasn't really sure what defined what a really good intern was and what I should kind of focus on, what I should gear towards. So what are some of the things that these up-and-coming interns should focus on before they start internship? I think that's a great question, Stuart. So I think one of the exciting things, and most of you probably heard about this, the AAMC has come up with entrustable professional activities that they expect a graduating medical student to do. And one of the things that we know is these activities happen throughout most of medical school, but there are some that are more advanced that are probably better done in the fourth year. And those are the ones that are probably most likely to gear you up for intern year. So I feel like through most of medical school, you'll be you know, learning how to do a history, learning how to do a physical exam, establishing differential diagnosis, things along those lines. But I think there are some more advanced skills that are more fourth year level. And I think if you apply those skills during your fourth year rotations, it'll make being an intern easier. So some of the ideas that I can think of, you know, one of them is starting to write orders and how to do prescriptions. Again, most junior medical students may not do this, but as a fourth year during your sub-I, you should definitely work on those. Uh, other things is, how do you do a handover? How do you transition care of a patient? And then how do you manage urgent and emergent conditions? Because I think, uh, as Alex kind of described, I think early on in intern year, you'll be put in with some very sick patients and learning how to triage them and learning how to determine who's sick versus not. The more you get experience with that, the easier it'll be when you do it as an intern. Yeah, I think that those are all really important things. Um, you know, we I also like to talk to tell interns that at the end of the day, your knowledge is not the key here. The key is learning how to do the job. And, you know, intern year is about really the apprenticeship of learning how to do this thing that you've been training for, for you've been learning about for so long. Um, and so it's not about going home and reading every night. It's not about uh, having the broadest differential. It's about really knowing how to do the thing. And so focusing on process flow and efficiency and, you know, getting your tasks done, I think is just as important as as, as learning about your patients, because at the end of the day, you can know every diagnosis and Harrison's, but if you can't put in an order and you can't figure out how to discharge a patient, then that was all for, for very little. And kind of to springboard from that, or I guess I, it should have been to springboard into it, but what does a successful fourth year of medical school look like to, to successfully transition into internship? Because, you know, mine, I've got, I had a lot of like what dermatology research, gross anatomy, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of things are not very applicable to internship, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think you could make fourth year as hard as you want to make it. Uh, I think the transition to intern year is challenging. And I think you can, you know, people kind of argue two things, right? They're like, let me enjoy fourth year. Let me focus on the things that excite me. Let me think about things from that perspective versus let me do the most intense rotations that I can with the hope that the transition to intern year would be easier if that's done. What I tell my students is don't go to either of those two extremes, but try something in in the middle of those, right? So if you're applying and you're going to do internal medicine, 
yes, a dermatology rotation might be great because you're going to be diagnosing rashes as part of your primary care clinic or in the inpatient setting. Um, do a medical ICU rotation or do an intensive care rotation just so your first day in an ICU is not when you're an intern. I always recommend that people do an emergency medicine rotation for the same reason because, again, you have the undiagnosed, undifferentiated patient, which is often different than what you take care of on Gen Med, uh, because many patients come at least with some introductory workup or things along those lines, or sometimes they come with a diagnosis already in hand. So the idea of how do you manage a patient who hasn't yet been differentiated is really important. So those are the three things that I usually tell my students to do is like, again, don't do four different sub-eyes and make fourth year so rigorous that all of a sudden it's like you started your intern year early but don't also do a bunch of rotations that are very easy and then lose your clinical skills before you start as an intern. So balance between those two. I had one comment and then I wanted to throw a question to Alex. Alex, in some of the stuff that you had highlighted for us um, kind of in our communication before the interview, I really liked the point here about asking for help from from the nurses, the pharmacists, the social workers, just like all the people in the hospital. I, I think like it, some people... I get the sense hit the ground on day one and they think, oh, I'm the, I'm the doctor, so I need to know all the answers to everything where I, I think if you just ask nurses, like ask their ask for their opinion on things, ask the, ask the pharmacist what dose of warfarin you should be prescribing and you, ask the respiratory therapist what they think vet, vent settings should be. I think you can gain a lot of information and also just build a lot of goodwill by their, like those people will say, okay, this is an intern that is humble and it wants to work with me and you're going to make a lot of friends with people by doing that. Um, so I, I love that you, you put that in the, you know, in kind of your thoughts when we were communicating beforehand. Um, and I wanted to ask if you, 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 you said there was a program director survey where they highlighted about like a top four things that, that interns had or top four qualities. Can you, can you tell the audience what those are? Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to pass that one to Somo cause he is the uh, expert on that, okay. on that particular area. Uh, sure. So there, um, essentially what's done each year is that the Program Director Association does a survey where they look at a lot of different questions. And this, I think, was published in 2015, if I remember correctly. Uh, Steve Angus from UConn was the uh, lead author on it. But they basically did a Program Director survey saying, what are you looking for in a resident? So if you had to define a successful intern, how would you define those characteristics? And these were the four that floated to the top. And when I read them, I was actually surprised because it wasn't what I expected. So the one thing that they said was organization and time management skills was the primary thing that they look for. After that, effective communication, basic clinical skills, and then finally knowing when to ask for assistance. So that those were four really interesting things because I think a lot of us may assume, oh, I'm looking for the intern with the most medical knowledge or things along those lines. When in reality, I think what program directors really value is the interns who are organized, who can manage the patients they're taking care of, and most importantly, know when to ask for help. So whether that is from nursing or pharmacy or social work or some of the things you were mentioning earlier, Matt, or whether that's from your upper level saying, you know, I'm in over my head. I'd love your assistance with thinking through this patient and what to do next. And, you know, I was going to add, Matt, back to your earlier point and then to build off what Somil said. Um, I think asking for help, particularly in the early first few days, is so important. I, you know, everyone knows you're new. <laughs> like everyone right. who's around you knows you're new. And they know uh, they've worked with new interns before. They get it. Um, and I think that if you go to you have the you have this you have this uh, unique time in your career 
when you can be completely transparent about the fact that you have absolutely no idea what you're doing. So, <laughs> right? And anytime anything happens, you could just call someone, call the nurse, call the pharmacist, whoever you're saying, and you say, look, I, it's, it's my first day. I really don't know what is normal to do here. Can you help me understand what you usually do in this scenario and see what they say? If you try that as an attending, um, you can do it in certain specific, you can do it in certain instances, maybe. But if you did it too much, people might be looking at you weird. Um, so you have this unique time where you actually can leverage your newness to learn. And I think that uh, the converse of that is that people who come in looking overly uh, confident. Um, we all know you're new. You know, sometimes maybe it'll look bad if you're overly confident and overly uh, thoughtful about your skills. So I feel like as as you kind of sail into your intern year, you have a lot of expectations of what you think is probably important. So I think, like for instance, clinical knowledge, we feel like that we should know everything about everything. Um, but probably that's not the most important thing in the grand scheme of things. I, I'm wondering if there are other things you can think of that seem critically important as as you're starting out your intern year, but probably in the scope of your career are not that important. My favorite is making the longest differentials with the most zebras. That's one oh of those things gosh. that makes us all look so cool, but oh. really uh, gets old. <laughs> but you're going to want to look cool, Alex. Come on. Listen, looking cool is about style. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> not not roundsmanship. Okay, I got, I got you. So, Mill? I'll say, uh, this is hard for me to say because I'm the medical student clerkship director, but... I appreciate all the effort that our interns place into teaching our medical students, but I think the main thing that they should focus on is figuring out what they need to do, staying organized, getting their work done. Like, I don't know that an intern necessarily needs to be giving a 20-minute chalk talk to the med students every day. I think teaching in the context of the patients is certainly very important, but probably one of the biggest things is you'll have time as a resident and as an attending to do all that teaching. So for now, kind of focus on how you can get your boxes checked, how you can get your work done. If there's time after that, doing a quick teaching session or talking to the med students, I think will be important, but I don't know that that should be the primary focus. You know, I'll add on to that because hmm. someone and I had talked about this before and I remember, so I was a, uh, I, I was a middle school teacher and I love teaching. It's what I, it's, it, it would, it's what recharges my battery. And so for me as an intern, exactly like Somel says, the focus of my job is really not teaching. The focus of my job is, is getting the job done, taking care of patients, responding to nursing questions, things like that. And for me, cause I wanted to teach, teaching was like the carrot for me. I would usually, I would tell myself, like, if you get all your discharges done by two and everything <laughs> is actually done right, then at three, maybe you can do a chalk talk with this, with, with your clerkship student to teach him something. Cause that was for mm. me, like what would get me through the day. Um, so, you know, prior prioritizing, but re recognizing exactly as someone says that teaching is probably really the job of the residents um, and perhaps not the interns. And I think the other piece is, is thinking about what you're teaching, right? So I would love as an intern to be able to show the med student here's my workflow, here's how I do things, here's how I get all the electrolytes supped, here's the way that I do that, which feels different than, let me do a chalk talk on hyponatremia. Right. Yeah, it's like the, it's like the hidden curriculum. Like, you're modeling behavior. Exactly. They're watching, they're like, they're, they'll probably be, uh, towards the end of intern year, when the interns are just like these machines that get everything done so quickly, you know, the, that's that's an aspirational goal for the students. Right. And I think involving the students in the way. So I think that's one of the challenges also, right? Especially as you flow into intern year and you have your workflow down, it's much easier for you to just say, you know what, even on the student patients, I'm going to go and sup the K, I'm going to call the consults, things along those lines. Versus if you can say, you know what, here's the things I'm going to get done. Um, why don't you work on this for your patients and then check back in with me once you get those done. That might be a great way to model that behavior as well. 
Stuart, you got cut off there. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to talk about teaching on the fly instead of chalk talks and yeah. finding that to be a more effective way at reinforcing what these principles are instead of just making it abstract. So it's directly applicable instead of just abstractly applicable. Okay. Totally. Okay. Yeah, I think that's great. So maybe we should talk about when when interns they're they're wanting to get better. We we've already mentioned some things they might be able to do. Alex, what do you recommend that people do? What what are some practices that might be helpful to interns? They're like, all right, well, I'm an intern. I I I sort of have the orders down at this point. I feel like I'm working in the hospital pretty well, but now I, I really want to kind of move to the next level. What are some things they should be doing? Uh, yeah, it's a great question, of course. Um, and I think that it is individual and it depends where you are in the year. And it's hard to give a blanket answer for what they should be looking for next. I think it takes a lot of insight on the part of the intern for where their deficiencies are. And then coming up with what uh, medical educators, like probably all educators call smart goals. Um, and these are things that are useful for every level of learner from, uh, you know, really anywhere you are in school all the way up to attending physician or retiree, I guess. But smart goals are um, mean that they're specific, measurable, assignable, relevant, and timely. So if you're going to pick a goal for yourself, it can't just be, I'm going to read more because that's mm-hmm. none of those things. It would be like for one admission a day, I'm going to read the summary and recommendations part of an up-to-date article that's relevant to that admission. That's specific. It's very specific. It's measurable because either you did read that one thing you didn't or you didn't. It's assignable because you're assigning it to yourself as a task to do. It's relevant because it's relevant to your patient and it's timely because it's appropriate for the task that you're accomplishing. Um, so I, I like to talk to my sub-eyes and students and my, and my uh, interns about setting smart goals for themselves and then being transparent with the team on what your smart goals are. So when you're attending or a resident sits down with you at the start of the rotation and says, what do you want to get out of this rotation? You can say, my goal for this rotation is to read an up-to-date article, summary and recommendation section on every uh, patient that, or one patient I admit in each call day. And then that's, you, you are transparent about your smart goal and, and that's how you, I think, get better. Can you mentioned the term soft mentors uh, in our correspondence. What can you explain what that is and why why that might be important or helpful? Oh yeah, so soft mentors are uh, a piece of advice I got when I was in med school. Um, I can't remember exactly who it was from, but was uh, to pick and choose from different people things that you see them doing that you like or that you don't like, and then incorporating those things into your practice. I actually remember it was a, so it was in regards to palliative care discussions. So in palliative care discussions, you may see someone say a comment that's particularly meaningful and really turn the conversation in a helpful way. And that's the kind of comment you should cut and paste into your brain and use that kind of comment (laughs) next time, right? Or you may be on a different rotation and you see a physician have a really uncomfortable um, interaction with the patient because they made a comment or said mm. something that really just did not land. And also copy and pasting that into your brain and remembering that that is not how I should respond to X. Um, and so I call those soft mentors because these are not people who are ever you're identifying as mentors necessarily, but they're people who you keep in your, it's like, it's like the guess who game, right? Where you have like little faces that pop up and you like pop them down. Um, you have all these people <laughs> who you like remember the various phrases that they've said to you over time or the various things they've taught you or the way that they did this physical exam maneuver. And then you have these like skills that you can access. And that's right. That's what I mean by soft mentors. I had not heard that before. I really like that concept. Thank you. Yeah. And I like, I feel like it's also applicable to the teaching, the medical students part too. Like, I think, 
there are very few lectures or chalk talks I remember that just resonated with me that I actually still have talked in the back of my brain, but I can identify people that were near me in levels of training that did something particularly well or had an approach that I really admired or talked to patients a certain way or talked to patients in a terrible way. Um, so I think that that's the way you can teach your students best, kind of going yeah. back to an earlier point by serving as their soft mentor and just role modeling as opposed to trying to tell them all the causes of GI bleeds. Right. <laughs> right. I agree. I think if you're modeling the behavior for them, they say, this works for me, this attitude works for me, things along those lines, then I think it's a really good way to, you know, it's getting back to the hidden curriculum. You're teaching them without formally teaching them, as you said, GI bleeds, but you're showing them, here's how I interact with patients, here's how I approach the workday, here's how I interact with the rest of the team, and you're really modeling that great behavior, and I think students can pick that up. Well, speaking of the workday, to kind of bring it home here, Alex, why don't you tell us what's like an ideal workday for for a successful intern at Cashlack Memorial Hospital? Okay, so uh, the intern probably wakes up at a reasonably early hour, maybe before the sun has come up, as we do. Um, (laughs) I suspect that every intern in the morning when they first wake up, they have their cup of coffee, they eat a balanced breakfast. They maybe do a yoga class. They slowly strut their way into work because they're so excited about intern year. They get their frappuccino um, and they show up at work, you know, with their battery fully recharged and ready to go for the day. Is that reasonable? You think that happens every day or or you're just hoping that for everybody? That's only on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. (laughs) Yeah, because the New York Times crossword puzzle takes a little bit longer on uh, that later in the week. So fair point. (laughs) So, but... But seriously, can you walk us through like what what is what is a do you have any tips for let's say this is going to come out a couple months into this year's intern year and uh, some people will be hearing it before they even start their intern year if they're starting in 2020. So what what can you tell people uh, what how should they kind of structure their day? Are there pieces they should think about? And do you have any tips for that? Uh, We can go through and Somo you add in as well. Yeah, so I guess the as as most interns know at this point, the first thing that happens when you get to the hospital is you get you get your sign out, um, and how sign out works is probably different at every institution. And sign outs when you learn about what happened to your patients overnight while you were gone, or you learn about some new patients who were admitted to your service overnight. Um, where I trained, we had um, a handoff tool that you could access from your cell phones, and so a lot of people would start reading about their patients on the bus ride to work. Um, you know, do that, do that if, that, if that floats your boat, but otherwise you show up at the hospital and you start, you find the night float and you ask them what happened with your people. Um, unfortunately, sometimes you have to wait in line, um, and maybe other people are getting signed out. And so that's a good time to start, uh, clicking through what orders were placed overnight in your patients. Uh, if any labs came back right in your patients, if there's a written sign out somewhere, you can start reading the written sign out. But I think a, a mistake would be to not get verbal sign out too. A lot of times the night floats are so busy, they don't have time to write everything down. And you'll almost always be surprised by uh, what you learn when you actually talk to the night float person. That gives a lot more context than whatever you found written down in the sign out. And what about pre-rounding? So, so I want to take this one? Yeah, sure. So I'd say the next step at that point is really dependent on how your team wants to structure things. So Um, I think some places will do pre-rounds and work rounds kind of together where you'll see the patients with your resident and with your student. Some places will prefer the intern will go see the patient um, by themselves initially. So I think it really depends on what your team culture is and how your program likes to do it. Um, I always like to finish running my labs and making sure that I have all the information on my patients before I go see them. And then I think the other major thing, if the timing can work, is 
as you're seeing your patients, checking in with either the night nurse or the day nurse to see what their concerns are and what they have going on uh, related to the patient. Because I think that will help make sure everyone's on the same page, will prevent you from getting paid more later and things along those lines. Um, so that's usually my next step of things before we move on to rounds. Yeah, and then on rounds, you know, you want to be prepared with your notes and data. And I always tell my teams that uh, everyone should present a firm plan. It is the bane of my existence when people tell me they'll consider doing something or when they say say something vague, like, well, we'll narrow antibiotics. It's like, well, don't consider it. Like, I'm considering it. Like, what are we doing? Um, yeah. And uh, or, you know, narrow antibiotics is my other favorite one because it's like, well, all right. So they're on vanxefepine. What are Sorry, I know I'm supposed to be using generic names, but uh, what are what are we going to be what are we moving on to? That's a that's a more narrow spectrum. Um, right. So I always like people to prepare to give a firm plan because then when I correct it or if someone else corrects it, you learn more about putting you put, you put your money down and we corrected it. Or they don't even hedge it; they just look at you and say, "Well, what should we do?" <laughs> right. <laughs> give more Lasix. Um, <laughs> but then there's a whole there's a whole norm to being on rounds and getting work done on rounds. Um, some hospitals will have workstations on wheels, um, others won't. And then who who is in charge of putting orders in while somebody presents, and who's in charge of uh, you know grabbing the nurse to be present on rounds or um, make phone calls to consults, and and how you negotiate those nuances of the team are things that you should be talking to your resident about. I think it's everyone's prerogative to sit down with the resident at the start of rotation and lay out a little bit how they like to run things. If you're an intern who likes to control their sign out and put in all their orders, then tell your resident, and they'll I'm sure that they will work with you on that. Um, but working rounds is always a tough balance. It's a lot of culture. The other thing I'll say related to that, Alex, is figure out how you're going to utilize your med student best for rounds. So obviously the med student should be following several of your patients. Um, make sure that the med student has the chance to present his or her patients, but also do you have time potentially before rounds to go over the presentation with the med student, right? So if the med students had a chance to discuss the plan with you and you help um, modify it slightly or make it more specific, then I think the med student shines on rounds and that's one way that you also look great as an intern. When we talked to Jeff Weiss about rounding, he said uh, he looks to see if the resident is watching their interns or students, like kind of like a proud parent that's like mouthing the words that they, I just love, that just made me <laughs> laugh so analogy. hard. Yeah. Okay. And uh, to, to bring us home here after rounds, uh, what what should people be doing after rounds? Sure. I, you know, I think that this is a little bit of norms too, but I think that the most important thing to do is see your unstable patients first and try to get the plans in place for your unstable patients or the people who have the most uncertainty around their plan of care. I'm really tidying those things up first. Uh, after you take care of those unstable or unclear patients, calling all your consults has got to be next and doing your discharges has got to be shortly after that. I know a lot of hospital systems push for early, early discharges. Um, I, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I don't care so much about that. I more care about early discharges because it helps coordinate the care, the, the plan of care. It helps make the discharge safer. We all know that 6 p.m. discharges never go well. So getting everything done as early in the day for the discharge as possible is, is probably the most helpful. Um, so once you've done your unstable patients, your consults, and your discharges, that's the time when you can circle back to some of the less urgent things like putting your supplements, your potassium, your magnesium, uh, tidying up your notes for the day, and and maybe even preparing your sign-out for the next day. That's also where you might sneak in uh, your, your coffee break with your team or something like that. And most importantly, uh, I should add, most importantly, um, do not forget to eat lunch. 
Um, yes. And absolutely go to noon conference. It's or whatever morning report educational didactic session your program has. It's one of the few things that has any uh, direct correlation with board's pass rates. Okay. And then after work, they're going to sleep and and get their do something for their own wellness uh even if it's even if it's a short period of time uh before they go to sleep but just make sure they do something for themselves right recharge that wellness battery figure whatever that means to you do even if it's sitting on your couch and staring at the wall for an hour whatever recharging means to you you should do it and call your mom so she can be proud of you for being her doctor child Alex and Somil, uh, we want we want to thank you for being on the show. We want to ask you each for take home points, and if there's any last minute pearls that you wanted to throw in there that maybe we forgot to mention, uh, Alex, you can go first, and and then Somil. Um, I guess I'll remind everyone that transitioning from a med student to an intern is really hard. It is normal and okay for it to be really hard. Everyone struggles to some degree in intern year, um, but. Every practicing physician has survived intern year and millions of people have done this transition before you. So I think every intern year, every intern should be um, reassured that they too can make it through. Remember to prioritize your own wellness, but also look to your residency program to support your wellness as well. Um, and, and don't forget that you're an employee and a person as well. Yeah, I'll echo what Alex said. I think intern year is one of the most exciting and amazing times, and you will go through a lot of personal and professional growth. Um, I think, as Alex said, you know, you will go through things and everyone has done it, which is really exciting. The other thing I'll say is kind of from a social or uh, standpoint is it's during intern year that you'll make some of the best friends that you'll have, honestly, for the rest of your life. So I can still, I still keep in touch with most of my friends from intern year. We're all, you know, involved in each other's lives and things along those lines. Um, so I think that's one of the most exciting things is you get through it, you work through it with a great group of people and it's, it's exciting from that standpoint. So anything y'all would like to plug before we let you go? Uh, read the wheel of time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get royalties Start for now. that, Alex? <laughs> I know. I wish, right? Start now because once you're an intern, you're not going to have time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. So Mel? Uh, I can't, I don't think I can top that. Okay. <laughs> you probably, you're probably right. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Delicioso. Oh, I like that one. <laughs> that was nice. Uh, get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Alex Glazer, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. I've been Matthew Frank Watto. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Oh, hi, Paul. Good night. (laughs) Paul, I like the... (laughs) I I can't remember which show it was recently. Stuart went on this like long like 
thing and you're like, I did not like that. Also, why is my nose bleeding or <laughs> <was> something? <laughs> it was, <laughs> I can't remember what we were talking about. It was just, it was so funny. <laughs> oh, I'm a delight. <laughs> was his nose actually bleeding? <laughs> Probably.